We're going to read the scripture this morning together. If you've got your Bible, I encourage you to open it. If you have your smartphone, you can browse to Luke chapter 1. And we're going to read starting in verse 26 through 38. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, How will this be, since I am a virgin? And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth, in her old age, has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her, who is called barren. For nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. You may be seated. Thank you, Kurt. Well, Merry Christmas. We, we can say it. It's all right. Merry Christmas. All right, we are in the second week of our Advent series, and for the next three weeks, we are going to be walking through uh, the story of the birth of Jesus. Jesus is coming into this world through Luke's account of the gospel. And then this morning, we're going to focus specifically on what is called the Annunciation. This is when the angel Gabriel came to Mary and announced to her, you will have a son. And this son will be a king, and his kingdom will never end. This is one hiccup. Mary's not married. Mary's a virgin. And she obviously has lots of questions. At the core of the Christmas message is a miracle. A miracle so big and so grand that has forever affected and changed the course of human history. And that miracle that we're reading about in our text, it actually isn't the virgin birth. The virgin birth, it's funny, I saw a lot of heads go up. The virgin birth is a miracle, but it is the way in which God has chosen to bring about the big miracle of Christmas. The incarnation, the God of the universe breaking into this world, coming in the form of a baby. The second person of the Trinity taking on flesh. I mean, can you imagine anything there probably aren't many things weaker, I don't think, in our world than a human baby. I mean, if you're walking down, say, Park Avenue, and in the bushes next to you, you, you hear a dog rustling, your caution would go up, right? You don't know what that dog is doing. You don't know if, if that dog can harm you. I mean, even a cat, 
I know some of you just don't like cats, but even, even a cat, your caution would go up. Even if it's a baby cat, they still have claws. They can claw you, they can bite you. But a human baby, I mean, can you think of anything more powerless? You would, all your caution would go away. You would run to that baby because you know, A, that baby can't harm you in any way. And B, that baby is so powerless that if you don't do something, that baby will die. So here you have the God of the universe coming down and taking on the form of a powerless baby. And that is what we celebrate in this season we call Advent, the incarnation of the God of the universe. And in our passage, I think we can see clearly how God took on flesh, how that should affect us, and then finally the decision in front of all of us. So let's start with how God took on flesh. God took on flesh through a virgin birth. So both Matthew and Luke, they're very clear in both of their accounts that Mary is a virgin. She is betrothed to Joseph. So betrothal in that time, imagine maybe the easiest way to explain it is a legally binding form of engagement. So there was agreement, not just between the participants, between their families, that they would be married, and it, but they weren't married yet. They, they haven't consummated the relationship yet, but it was still legally binding. And because it was legally binding, it, to get out of it required a legal divorce. And so Mary is in this season, this stage of the relationship with Joseph when she finds out that she's pregnant. And I think the idea of a virgin birth, it, it can mess with our heads if we, if we really think about it. I mean, if you're around, I would imagine, unbelieving friends, most of our unbelieving friends would laugh at the idea of a virgin birth. I, and I'm increasingly, I meet people who identify as Christian or even leaders and pastors in Christian churches uh, who are beginning to jettison the idea of a virgin birth because they can't rationally explain it. And they'll say things like, well, people back then, they just lived in, in more gullible times. They didn't understand exactly what was going on. Well, listen, I, I'm, I know they may not have understood quantum physics, but they knew where a baby came from. <laughs> They understood that. And you can see it in verse 4. Mary responds by saying, how will this be since I'm a virgin? She understands what's going on. So you can't make the gullible argument with the virgin birth. And there are other people who'd say things like, well, those, uh, those ancient worldviews, they would have naturally evolved into something as crazy as God taking on flesh through a virgin birth. But if you really know your history, none of the four prevailing worldviews would have ever evolved into God taking on flesh. The the Greco-Roman world, there was nothing conducive in that world that would have evolved into God taking on flesh. Certainly there was nothing in the Eastern world that would have evolved into that worldview. There is no credible Egyptologist in the world that would ever say that Egyptology evolved somehow into God taking on flesh in the way that the Bible says it did. And then Certainly Judaism, as was practiced in the day, wouldn't have naturally evolved into that because they killed Jesus for this reason. They killed him for saying he was God in the flesh. So it is hard to understand. I'll give you that. If you're here today and and you're, you're saying, I hear you, Jim, maybe it wouldn't evolve, maybe they weren't gullible, but it's still just so hard to rationalize in my mind. And if that's you, I'm sympathetic, but I would say to me, that's how every birth is. Every birth is a mystery to me. I mean, you have people who were not here and then now they're here. 
This month, I've gotten to spend time with our two newest additions to the church family, Madeline Jackson and Bonnie Van Nada. They're all sitting together over there. I mean, a year ago, Madeline and Bonnie were not here, and now they are here with minds and souls. That's a mystery. And so for me, every birth is a mystery, and I have no problem saying that, yes, the virgin birth is a mystery to me as well. But we also, we can't, we have to understand that the, the miracle that's happening it's bigger than even a virgin birth. Because right now, I mean, science, science can produce a virgin birth now. You realize that, okay? So the miracle is more than just a virgin birth. The miracle is that this, this birth came about without a man, the Holy Spirit overshadowed Mary, and the baby produced was both fully man and fully God. And it's really important to understand that God did this for some reasons. We hold on to this doctrine because he very specifically came in this world and he came in through a virgin birth and in the form of Jesus Christ, both fully God and fully man. And he did this for some reasons. And the Bible tells us that the main reason that God chose to take on flesh in this way through a virgin birth is that because in this way, full deity and full humanity can exist in one person. This is really important to understand. Because if Jesus were only fully human, then he would have been affected by the sin of Adam. He could not have remained sinless. He could not intercede for us. And he certainly could not atone for our sins. So we needed a savior who would be more than fully human. And at the same time, Jesus wasn't only fully God, which is a really funny thing to to say. But Jesus wasn't only fully God because if he was only if he was only fully God if we went to this other extreme then he couldn't relate to us he wouldn't have experienced our pains and our sorrows and all of our temptations God very intentionally wanted Jesus to come into this world in a specific way the second form second person of the trinity and this baby this baby that was born that Luke is writing about somehow because of the way God chose to break into this world, this baby took on the full humanity of Mary and the full deity of God without any of the line of Adam, the sin of the line of Adam. And that is really important to understand. I love, Tim Keller has this great quote. He says, Christianity is the only religion that has added, that has added the attribute of courage to the list of God's attributes. Why? Because only in Christianity has God made himself so weak that he needed it. He became so weak that he faced danger, he faced death, he faced suffering, he faced torture, he faced hunger. So God came into this world through a virgin birth for a very specific reason. So that we would have a baby that was fully divine and fully human. Because only, only that baby could really deal with the problems of this world. And what I love is it isn't as if this is coming up three quarters of the way through our faith. You know, God had been predicting over and over that this is what would happen all the way back to Genesis 3. Right after the fall, right after all of the problems that we experience now came into this world, God went to the serpent Satan and he cursed him and he said, one day there will come an offspring from this woman, someone from the seed of this woman, and that person will come into this world and you may bruise his heel, but he will crush your head. And here in the, 
birth of Jesus in Luke chapter 2, we see the arrival of that man, Jesus Christ, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, fully human, fully divine, whose kingdom will not end. And we have to understand that when we see this and we understand how this is all playing out, that it should affect us, it should move us. So many in our, our society, we look at the virgin birth as irrelevant or unnecessary, but when we understand why God does things the way that he does, and we understand it's God's been working throughout millennia to bring this about, now it's not unnecessary and relevant, it's necessary and logical. And so when we look at this virgin birth, it should affect us. It should elicit a response. So let's look at that. Because God taking on human flesh isn't just a doctrine to know. It is a life-changing truth. It should elicit a response in us, and it certainly elicited a response in Mary. All right, so let's look at some of the ways that it should affect us. First, it should comfort us. I mean, the, the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, the long-predicted Messiah has come. He's with us. He's in the flesh. We can, they could touch him. They could see him. They could talk to him. And Jesus tells us at his ascension that he will never leave us. He will never forsake us. And when we look at this and we understand what God is doing, what we see is we have the ministry of the presence of Jesus Christ. And the ministry of presence is a really significant thing because when we're hurting, when we're, when we're tried, when we're, when we're scared, there's no information about God that is going to replace the ability to know God and to have God and to touch God. Well, haven't talked to you. Let me sit. I'll stop there right now. Today is, uh, today is my son Colin's 10th birthday. And so 10 years ago, he came into this world. And a week after he came into this world, we went back to the hospital for a, like a one-week checkup. And when we went into the hospital, some of our friends were there because they had just lost their first child very late in the pregnancy. And I remember wanting to help and not, not really knowing what to do. And I, and I text an older, wiser man, and I, said, I explained the situation, and I said, I, I, just, I need a verse. I need a Bible verse for them. And he, he texted me back, and he said, I don't have a Bible verse for them, but I have one for you. <laughs> Weep with those who are weeping. Because in that moment, when you're hurt, when you don't understand, there's no information that's really going to help you. There's nothing that you need more than people to cry with and to hug and to pray with. That's called the ministry of presence. And and what we see here in, in God breaking into this world is that he offers us the same kind of ministry. Because when we're scared about our health, when we're scared about our finances, when we're lonely or depressed or anxious, we can go to Jesus. We can talk to him. We can cry to him. We can pray to him. And he will be with us in a very real way. So we look at the incarnation and it should produce some measure of comfort in us. Secondly, we can see that the incarnation should make us care about the suffering and the downcast people in this world. Who is it that God chose to bring Jesus into this world? Mary. I mean, humanly speaking, I think Mary was the wrong choice. Because humanly speaking, you would want someone royal, someone grand, someone who would not be susceptible to rumors about her impropriety. I mean, you would want somebody that was more culturally acceptable. 
But Mary was from Nazareth. One commentator said to call Nazareth a town would be a stretch. We know Mary was poor. When she went to the temple, she offered the lowest, the lowest offering of two pigeons. She would be gossiped about for the rest of her life, and she was from the wrong race. Romans ruled the world in that day, in that part of the world. The Jews were a subjugated, conquered, ruled people. But we know that throughout the whole narrative arc of the Bible that these are the kinds of people that God chooses. You know if you read the Bible that God cares about the people who can't protect themselves. Psalm 10, do justice to the fatherless and oppressed. Psalm 82, give justice to the weak and the fatherless. Maintain the right of the afflicted and the destitute. James 1, religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction in their affliction. Any form of Christianity that informs the head, but it doesn't affect the heart and move the hands, that is not biblical Christianity. Many of you know that we've been working for some time on on producing a podcast. Nothing's been released yet. And we're doing it under a larger ministry called As in Heaven that you'll hear more about. But the premise of the podcast came about like this. I was realizing that I was having a lot of really really helpful conversations with Christian leaders around the city. It's very Orlando focused. I would be in conversations with people who were smart, who were faithful, who were innovative. I was challenged. I was convicted. I was encouraged in what I'm called to do here as a Christian in Orlando. And I began to leave these conversations wishing that all of you could have heard it as well. (laughs) Wishing that we could process these conversations. What do we agree with? What do we not agree with? How do we process these things that are going on in different parts of our city? And it really was just an idea until two people came into my life. The first was a guy named Dr. Justin Holcomb. I call him the most influential Christian you've never heard of. He's, he is a professor at RTS and he's an Episcopal priest here in town. And so because of who he is, when he, when he heard me say that, I wish everybody could listen to this and be fun to do a podcast. He said, well, I'll do that with you. I was like, well, now all the guests will say yes. <laughs> all right, you're in. And then another person came into my life, Matt Kenyon. When we hired him as a music director, I did not realize what experience he had in producing podcasts. He has significant experience doing this. So these people say, we're in, and now this is a reality. And I know some of you are wondering, Jim, how does this relate to Mary in any way right now? And, and here's the answer. Because this week we got to have uh, Joel Hunter on our show. And many of you know Joel Hunter. He he pastored, he's done hundreds of things in the community, but he's most known for having pastored Northland Church. Um, some of you sat under his ministry. He, he pastored that church from a church of 150 to about 20,000. He is known as one of the most influential people in our city. And we got to sit down and talk with him. You know, it's funny to think about. You have an Episcopal priest, a Baptist preacher, and Obama's spiritual advisor. <laughs> kind of sounds like a bad bar joke. But it was one of the most encouraging conversations I've had in a long time because I got to hear about this man who has accumulated incredible influence in our society. And he's talking about how he's using that influence now in his retirement years. And he's devoting all of his time and his influence to those who can't help themselves. He's devoting his time to the homeless and the oppressed. He's entering into the incredibly confusing conversation of racial tensions in our, in our culture. He's helping people who 
who are victims of the opioid crisis. He's tangibly getting involved with the sex trafficking issues of our, not only our global society, but Orlando in particular. And so when I get to hear him talk about these things at the same time that I'm looking at who God chose to bring to come into this world I can't help but look at this man and and really feel like your ministry reflects the character of God in a really significant way because any form of Christianity that informs the head but does not affect the heart and motivate the hands that is not biblical Christianity and then third In this story, we see that our salvation is by grace alone. Have you ever noticed that Jesus, that, excuse me, Joseph and Mary, they didn't get to name their baby? That's that's kind of a big deal. I mean, what, well, that's one of the greatest honors we have of our life is being able to name our child. I, I remember how much thought and effort and prayer went into naming my children. You know, some of them weren't named until multiple days after they were born, (laughs) But Joseph and Mary didn't get to do that. They were told by the angel Gabriel that he would be called Jesus. And that's important if you realize that the name Jesus means God saves. So in the name of Jesus, the name of this baby, we have Christianity in a nutshell. Because every other worldview, every other religion gives you things that you must do to be saved. Every other religion terminates in a prophet leaving you with something to do. But only in Christianity do we get God coming to us in the form of a prophet, saving us himself, doing the work himself. So if you think about it, that if our our situation is so dire that it requires God himself coming to dwell with us, then what alms or sacrifices are really going to help our plight in any way? This is how I've been thinking about it the past couple of weeks. Our house is completely Christmasified on the inside. The outside is my responsibility, so it's not entirely done yet. But as soon as Thanksgiving was over, our tree was up because we're Christians. And I know I'm going to take a character hit here, and I'm okay with it. But our family has allowed our five-year-old, James, to uh, believe that he has the magical power to be able to turn the Christmas lights on and off simply by saying, ho, ho, ho. Every, what he doesn't realize, though, is every time he says, ho, 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 somebody in the house is running to the clicker <laughs> to, go, to go and do that. And it was, it was funny this week, Skylar and Brianna Flowers were in our house and James wanted to show Skylar, who's our, our student ministry director here, wanted to show him his magical powers. And so James is saying, ho, 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 and lights going on and off. Skylar's like, that's incredible. <laughs> how, how did you do that? And I'm like, Skylar, <laughs> come on. <laughs> but here's the deal. We contribute nothing more to our salvation than my son does saying ho, ho, ho to the Christmas lights. And it's really cute and nice to think about you know, the way that a five-year-old th- thinks he's contributing something to the Christmas lights going on and off. But it's deadly serious when we think that we can contribute anything beyond the incarnation and resurrection of Jesus Christ to our salvation. We know just in the name of Jesus that God saves and that our salvation is by grace alone. And this truth leaves us all with a big decision. 
you know, one of the problems about Christmas, you hear this every year, is that it gets so busy you can forget the reason for the season. You know, so many people celebrate Christmas and they don't even understand what, that there is something called the incarnation. And if they've heard the word, they don't know what it means. And many of us inside the church, we, we may even know it's about the incarnation, but things get so busy that we, the splendor and the grandeur of it just doesn't hit us the way that it should. The truth of the incarnation, it should elicit a response in us. It certainly elicited a response in Mary. So let's look at, look at how Mary responded and consider how we, we might respond as well. So first, Mary honestly engaged. I love the way that she engaged with the angel. She doesn't naively believe. She engages. She asks questions. She wants to know how this is happening. She asks the angel, how will this be since I am a virgin? In 29, uh, Luke writes, but she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And, and, and she's looking at an angel. I mean, if anybody would be, you would think would just naively believe it, somebody who's standing there looking at an angel. But we see that she tried to discern. And th- this Greek phrase, tried to discern, it's behind our word for dialogue. And our word dialogue, it means to think intensively and carefully. And that's what Mary is doing. And we should be okay having this kind of freedom when when. Given the claims of Jesus Christ, breaking into this world through the virgin birth, we should be okay asking questions. We should give people the freedom to be able to ask questions and to promise, to process. And I think it's really interesting to look at the difference between the way that Mary responded and the way that Zechariah responded. So you may have noticed in the beginning of our text, it says in the sixth month. So if you, if you go back six months, there's another couple hearing from an angel and that couple is Zechariah and Elizabeth and and Elizabeth and Mary are relatives we we see that here in this gospel Zechariah and Elizabeth are are past childbearing years they're old Zechariah is a priest and the angel comes and said you will bear a son a son who we would come to know as John the Baptist and look at how Zechariah responds how shall I know this for I am an old man and my wife is advanced in years that really sounds like a similar response, doesn't it? The, the, the way that, that Mary responded, the way that Zechariah responds. But Mary, she's called the favored one. Zechariah is rebuked and his mouth is shut until the baby comes. So that, that seems like an inconsistent response to what seems like consistent responses. But every commentary, every commentator I read, they all agree there's a difference at the heart level of what's going on. Mary's asking how. She's, she's asking, how is this going to happen? Just explain it to me. I want to understand more. Zechariah, he's challenged the, challenging the angel with a cynical heart. And, and you know, if you think about it, maybe, maybe over years and decades of not getting the very thing they desired most in the world, you can understand how Zechariah would, would look at this angel and say, how will this be? Kind of thinking behind, you know, under the surface. Why, you have not given this to me my entire life. Why should I believe you now? But that's not how Mary's responding. And so if you're here today and you struggle with the idea of a virgin birth, with the idea that God would come in flesh, if you have questions about it, I want you to hear from me that Mary did too. And it's okay to ask questions. 
And that there are resources out there and people in this room who would love to come alongside you and listen to you and pray for you. But the challenge in this text, if you have questions, is to engage honestly, not challenge cynically. So she engaged honestly, and then secondly, we get to see that Mary surrendered fully. I'm going to start with verse 36. And behold, your relative Elizabeth, in her old age, has, con- has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her who, has called, who was called barren. For nothing will be impossible with God. And here's, here's Mary's response. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. She surrendered to God's will. And the word surrender, it, it has, I mean, we think about it pretty negatively, right? Because it means you lost. <laughs> I mean, a general surrenders when he knows his battle is defeated. A, a wrestler uh, surrenders when he knows that he's lost. When you surrender, you're giving up what you want. You're giving up your will, which is 100% what Mary's doing here. But there's a big difference between what Mary's doing and the way we use the word surrender in every area of our life. Mary is surrendering her will to God's, for God's better will in her life. She's surrendering the lesser for the greater. And surrender is going to mean hardship for Mary. I mean, certainly she, she will be made fun of for the rest of her life as the girl in the small town who got pregnant before she was married. Uh, Joseph, if not for God's intervention, which happened, would have divorced her, but she didn't know at the time that God was going to intervene. And beyond all that, she was going to have to watch her son die an excruciating death on a cross. She didn't want those things, but she surrendered to God's will and she got so much more than she lost. I sort of chuckle every year. Don't judge me for this. When, um, when I hear the song, Mary, Did You Know? Because I'm like, yes, the angel Gabriel told her. <laughs> like, you will bear a son, he will be a king, and his, king, his kingdom will never end. And so Mary knew some things. She knew some facts, and that's why she surrendered. She didn't know the whole thing. She didn't know all the details, but she knew enough from God to be able to respond and say, yes, let your will be done. I submit to you. I surrender to you. And we would be wise to take notes from Mary's surrender. Because when we surrender to God's will, we're giving up the lesser for the greater. It's like surrendering really bad gas station barbecue for Four Rivers. You know, it's like surrendering a Legoland ticket for a Disney ticket. I'm sorry if anybody works at Legoland. I like Legoland. Disney's the par excellence of that world. C.S. Lewis He said that the problem with humans isn't that we desire too much. It's that we desire so little. We're so easily pleased with what we think we want when there's so much more out there. Because none of us at the end of this life is ever going to look back at the ways that we surrender to Jesus Christ and think that wasn't really worth it. All of us are going to look back and wonder, why did I not do that sooner? There's always a cost to following Jesus, but it is always worth it. There is always a cost to giving up our will and surrendering to God, but it is always worth it. And here, I think, is the best part 
about having this big sovereign God that would love us so much that he would pursue us to the point of taking on flesh himself. It's that in that we get called into the same kind of ministry. He comes into our world and he doesn't just just snap his fingers and make everything done. He allows us to come alongside him and be a part of this ministry. And the way that God comes into this world, it, it reflects something about the way that we are to engage this world as well. So there are some people out there that would use the word incarnational ministry. Um, while I appreciate them, I, I, would want to, uh, I would want to let the word incarnation just sit with Jesus's ministry. <laughs> you know, I, I would want to distance my ministry with Jesus's incarnation. But I do have to acknowledge that it represents in some way the way that we're supposed to go into this world. It models in some way, it, it informs in some way the way that we are called to be engaged in this mission with Jesus Christ, to expand his kingdom, to strengthen his kingdom. And so this next part probably could and should be its own sermon, but very concisely, how does Jesus model the ministry and the mission that we're called into? Well, first, he is intimately involved with both God the Father and the culture and the society. He, he knows God. He's talking to God every day and he knows the people. And so when we, want, when we ask our what we can do to have a more effective ministry, we have to ask ourselves, are are we really in touch with God? Are we walking with him? Are we confessing our sin? Are we engaged with the Bible, walking in the power of the Holy Spirit? And do we really know this lost world? Are we really interacting with lost people? Do we understand their hurts and their hopes and their idols in a way that we can more helpfully communicate the promises of Jesus Christ to their lives? Secondly, Jesus gave up power. You know, he gave up his rights and his desires. And, and if you're like me, if you're a, a white 21st century American Christian, you're in a season of losing power. And I'm not for one second going to talk about whether it's right or wrong or good or bad. But I do want to say that Jesus understands it and that he offers missional opportunities in it. Because if you look at the seasons where Christianity has grown and exploded the most significantly, it's when we as Christians have been the most powerless in our society. So I I don't know what's gonna happen in our country. I don't care what happens in our country that way. I know that whether we have power or no power, Jesus Christ promises to be powerful through us. And if we lose power to the point where we're thrown in prison, Jesus gets us and will use us. We have to understand that the goal is the kingdom and to be able to put our rights and our desires on the side because our main call as citizens in heaven is to see that kingdom grow. And then Jesus displays the glory and grace of God by going into the culture, by exposing unjust social norms, racial inequality, and unchecked patriarchy, and so should we. Because Jesus doesn't stand outside of a culture talking at it. He goes into the culture, into our world, lives among us for 30 plus years. And because he's in the culture, he can speak to us. He understands us, he gets us. And in Jesus's incarnation, we learn how it is that we're called to be effective ministers of the gospel of Jesus Christ in this very dark city in which we live. 
And so that's going to look different for all of us. It's going to look different for a high-power attorney than it will for a, a social worker. You know, it's going to look different for a pediatric nurse than it would for a Disney cast member. It's going to look different for a, pa- a young pastor and a grandmother. But all of us are called into the same ministry. All of us are called to pronounce the glory of the incarnate God in the second, form, the second person of the Trinity, Jesus Christ. So the Christmas season, it, it's about God breaking into this world in a way that will ultimately fix it forever. But we have to be careful to even think that that's the end of the story. My friend, Dr. Michael Allen, uh, he helpfully guards us from what he calls eschatological escapism. So it's a fancy way of saying our hope ultimately isn't just in a better world. Our hope is that we get to be with God. We get to be with God forever without any presence or hindrance of sin. And we get to celebrate him and know him and glorify him forever in the new heavens and the new earth as the kingdom comes. And God has ensured that that will happen for all of us who believe and hope in the incarnation and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the King of Kings. In the words of the Apostle John, the Word become flesh. Would you pray with me? God, we are so thankful to be able to come in here, to be able to look at your word, to be able to see the ways that you, the lengths that you go to, to come to us, to minister to us. I pray that our utter helplessness would be on display in the Christmas story, that our, that our situation was so horrible and so dire and so extreme that it required you doing everything, coming into this world, living the life that we could never live and giving that life and all the merits that it that it accrued up on the cross as Jesus Christ received the wrath of God in our place and all the merits that he accrued given to us who deserve that wrath on that cross. I pray that it would make us feel as small as we are, that it would help us see you as big as you are, and then it would make us excited to be able to be called into this ministry that you have established secured and modeled. We thank you, Jesus. We love you, and we pray this in your name. Amen.